Good morning. Thank you, Sharon, for that heartwarming melody to start our worship off this morning. We at First Church would like to welcome you, whether you're here in person, listening on the radio, or watching on Facebook. We are blessed that you're part of our service and hope that you feel God's love and presence while you worship with us this morning. Happy Independence Day and weekend to everyone. How blessed are we to live in a country with the freedoms that we have. We pray for those who don't have those freedoms and in some occasions are unable to worship without fear of persecution. We're also mindful of the many people that came before us that gave up much to provide us a place for us and our families that is safe and with many liberties. For the announcements, please look over the bulletin for items that may be of interest to you. The rose on the altar is in honor of Dave and Deb McFeely, who celebrate 50 years of marriage on July 7th. Congratulations to the two of you. The bouquet of flowers on the altar is in honor of Jim and Bev Bronicky, who celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary on June 30th. They are a gift from the children and grandchildren. It's great to see a bunch of the Reinecke show up and celebrate this with Grandma and Grandpa. <laughs> Junior and Senior High Backyard Movie Night is this Thursday, July 7th at 9 p.m. at Tori's house. So that looks like it's probably a fun time to join up with Tori and that group. So share that news and opportunity. Don't forget the summer reading plan that takes us through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Copies are available at the Info Center in the Sanctuary, which is back here. Or look to the website at www.firstchurchnk.org. It is also on the front page of the church newsletter that went out this last week. Now please rise and join me in the call to worship. It is taken from Psalm 62. Truly, my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from Him. Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress, and I will never be shaken. How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down? This leaning wall, that tottering fence. Surely, they intend to topple me. From my lofty place they take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. As my soul finds rest in God, my hope comes from Him. Truly He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress and I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. Surely the lowborn are but a breath. The highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your hearts on them. One thing God has spoken... Two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. And you reward everyone according to what they have done. And now the praise team will lead us in singing Reckless Love.
And with that, share a little bit of that love with those near you as the children come forward for children's chat. Independence Day. Good job. What is Independence Day about? The day that we were free. Do you? It's like our country's birthday. Do you know how old the United States of America is going to be tomorrow? Two hundred and forty-six years old. That's pretty old, isn't? Yeah. Okay, so what colors on our flag? Red, white, and blue. Now, do you think when they went to make the flag, they just like had a rainbow and they just pointed to three colors and decided those were the colors for our flag? No, they didn't. You're right. White is not in the rainbow, so they wouldn't have been able to pick it. So red, okay? Red stands for courage. There are a lot of men and women who had to have a lot of courage to stand up and fight for our country, okay? And a lot of them even died. And in the white color stands for purity. Purity means doing what is right, okay? And we hope and pray that our country will always do what is right. And blue, blue stands for justice. You know, when we say the Pledge of Allegiance in school and we say with liberty and justice for all, that means that in our country, everyone should be treated fairly and with respect. Now, these red, white, and blue colors can remind us of Jesus, too. What do you think the red would remind us of? Jesus' blood. That's right. He, sh- he died on the cross for our sins so we would be free of our sins. And the white reminds us that uh, when I give my heart to Jesus, he washes me and I become white as snow. Okay? And the blue reminds us of God's faithfulness. The Bible tells us in 1 John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and make us clean. So, you said Independence Day is about freedom, right? What does that mean? What is freedom? Freedom is when you can do the things that you want to do, right? Now, I have a question. What can we do? What what are we free from? Sins. Sins, yep. Are we free to go to whatever church we want to? Yep. Yep. Are we free to say whatever we want to? Yep. Are we free to do a lot of things that other people can't? We are. We are. And do you know, a long, long time ago, there were people who paid a price for that freedom. They died so that we can come to church where we want to come to church. 
and so that we can write and say the things that we want to write and say. Okay? That is freedom. We have freedom because those people fought for it for us so that we would have the things and be able to do the things that we do today. All right. So as we celebrate Independence Day tomorrow, I want us to stop and thank God for the people who pay the ultimate price for our freedom. But we also need to remember to thank God for sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for us so that we are free of sins. Okay? So if you notice, I have flags on the front pew. Okay? You're each allowed to take one after we're finished praying, okay? To help you remember what the red, white, and blue stands for. Okay, bow your head, please. Dear God, thank you for the freedom that we enjoy in our country. We are thankful for those who paid that price. But even more important, we are thankful for the freedom we have because Jesus was so willing to pay the price for our sin. Please be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Maria. Don't forget to grab your flags, kids, as you head back to your seats. And again, happy Independence Day. And Maria, what a great reminder of what we're celebrating and why we're celebrating this day as a nation. In Scripture, Jeremiah 29 reminds us, as, as the Lord is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon, he tells them to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. The principle there is that no matter where God has placed us, no matter what nation we live in, we're called to seek the peace and prosperity of that city, that we, as God's people, can make an impact, a positive Christ-filled impact in the place that God has placed us. So Independence Day is always a great reminder to to be thankful for the many blessings we have living in this country that we do. And as Maria just reminded us, the, the many people who have sacrificed uh, of their of themselves, including giving the ultimate sacrifice to assure those freedoms that we have. And Independence Day is also an opportunity for us as Christians to pray for our nation, right? Because we also know that that we uh, we live in a broken world, and there's a lot of division and a lot of polarization in our world today. And so, what a what a great opportunity we have as Christians to go before our Heavenly Father and pray for our nation, pray for our leaders, pray for the citizens of this country. And we will have an opportunity to do that together in a few moments. But before that, we are going to collect our offering. The offering this morning goes to support our general fund here at First Church of New Knoxville. And so as the deacons come forward to collect the offering, we encourage you to give as you feel led to give. Our special music this morning is being provided by Grace Rediger and Sharon Chaney on the piano.
Amen. Thank you, Grace and Sharon, for that beautiful rendition of Stars and Stripes. I invite you to remain standing now as we sing hymn number 569 out of our blue hymnals, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. said a moment ago, we're going to have an opportunity now to pray for our nation as well as the other burdens that we can carry before our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ this morning. I invite you to pray with me. Father God, we are grateful and thank you for the many blessings that we do experience from living in this wonderful nation that you've placed us in. And so this day we pray for the United States. We pray for our leaders to lead well. We lift up our president and the Supreme Court and Congress that they may have wisdom beyond their means, that they would have a hunger and thirst after your righteousness, Lord. We also pray, Lord, that we would, as a nation, live up to the ideals on which we were founded. Help us, Lord, to to not neglect our responsibility to one another. But as as Maria reminded us, as, as the words of our Constitution and Declaration of Independence remind us, Lord, that all men are created equal. And I help, I pray, Lord, that we would live into that in all of its implications as a nation. Lord, we do praise you for your provision and your many blessings and freedoms that you've provided for us here. Let us not take them for granted and always live, Lord, to assure those freedoms and be able to share those freedoms with others and promote those freedoms both here and abroad. Lord, we do pray for unity as a nation as well. Lord, we may not always agree on everything, and and it's pretty much guaranteed, Lord, that we will not always agree on everything. But we can treat each other with dignity and respect. Lord, heal the division and heal the hurt that 
we have experienced as a nation and bring us together as, as one nation under God. And let us, Lord, live in light of who you're calling us to be. Lord, I know this is a difficult time in our nation for many. We pray for those who've been affected by, uh, by the, the downturn in the economy. Many people are feeling the weight of inflation and other factors. May you, Lord God, provide for their need. And Lord, we also pray for our churches here in America. We ask that you strengthen us by your spirit and your word. May we stand strong on your truth in an age where truth is relative. May we be your hands and feet to hurting and needy people. And may your church be the city on a hill that shines brightly for all to see your goodness and your glory. And Lord, like every other Sunday, honestly, Lord, every other day we come before you and lift up our needs to you. The names and families that are represented in our bulletin, as well as our own individual concerns, Lord. We trust that you are good. We trust that you are, are able to meet our needs because we know that you have already met our deepest needs in your son, Jesus Christ, and through the presence of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask, Lord, that you would provide what is needed. Bring healing for those that are hurt. Bring restoration for those, Lord, who are lacking. And we ask for reconciliation, Lord, for relationships and families and, and other, other situations, Lord, where there is division and hurt. May you bring reconciliation. Lord Jesus, you laid down your life that your people may be one. Help us to be one in you, united together in our pursuit of you and our love for you and our desire to serve you in this world. And may you be glorified in all things. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, verse 1, no, chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then from Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Amen. Thank you again, Maria. Let's pray together and ask for God's blessing on our time this morning. Father God, as we open your word together now, we ask for you to bless this time that we have. We thank you for the reading of your word, which we, we know never returns to you void. So we ask that your word by your spirit would do a, a mighty work here in this place and in the hearts and minds of all those, Lord, who listen this morning, both here in the sanctuary, listening on radio and also watching online. Holy Spirit, we ask that you also give me words to speak, that they may be words of truth and encouragement and conviction. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So today we're going to continue our series as we have, have already begun this, this summer looking at who Jesus is, answering that question that Jesus posed to his disciples, who do you say that I am? So last week we looked at Jesus as our Messiah, and today we're looking at Jesus as our Savior. 
Now, this may seem like a pretty obvious one for us to go to, right? It seems like there, we can hit some of the highlights here, and we will do that this morning. But before we talk about Jesus as our Savior, we really need to ask the question, what are we being saved from? Because we're not truly going to appreciate Jesus as our Savior. We're not going to understand the depths of what that means unless we first understand what we're being saved from. I've already shared with you my love for Lord of the Rings, and so you guys all know that I'm a nerd, but I'm going to take that one step a little bit further this morning. Another one of my favorite book series from when I was younger is called Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It was a sci-fi comedy series, and the first book was called Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, written by a man named Douglas Adams. And in that book, it tells the story of... um, uh, this, I don't remember the name of it, but a, a super intelligent race of aliens, right, that had j- built a giant supercomputer the size of a planet in order to determine what the answer to life, the universe, and everything was. And so they programmed this giant supercomputer to figure out the answer, and it took it thousands of years to determine the answer to life, the universe, and everything. And after all of that time and all of that work and all of that effort, the computer said that the answer to life, the universe, and everything was 42. See, the problem was they didn't bother to figure out what the question was. So they knew the answer to life, the the universe, and everything, but they didn't know what the question was that they were supposed to be asking. And so, of course, the story is that they have to go on and try to figure that out. Because they never knew what the question was that they were supposed to be asking. You see, in the same way, it's impossible for us to fully understand Jesus as Savior if we don't understand what we're being saved from. It's like having the answer to a question that we've never asked ourselves. And so for in, order, in order for us to do that, we need to take a step back and, and understand what we're being saved from. That if you don't have an awareness of sin, both individually and corporately, you will never understand who Jesus is as Savior. And so we need to start by defining sin for us. And, and I want to offer up this definition. Sin is rebellion, both intentional and unintentional, against God's will. Let me say that again. Sin is rebellion, both intentional and unintentional, against God's will. So let's dig into that a little bit further. Sin is both a condition that we experience, it's part of who we are, as well as an action. It's who we are and what we do. In order to demonstrate that, we need to go all the way back to the garden, to Adam and Eve. Sin, you see, affects the very nature of a person. It's inherited from Adam and Eve and passed down to everyone who's ever lived. As you all know, and I've shared this multiple times since February, and uh, earlier this year, Josephine was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, and we've learned a lot about that condition over the last few months. You know, type 1 diabetes, as opposed to type 2, type 1 is an autoimmune disorder that is genetic in nature. And it caught us completely by surprise because nobody in our family, at least that we're aware of, has dealt with type 1 diabetes. And so when she inherited it, we were completely surprised and caught unaware. But she did inherit it somehow, somewhere along the family line. It should not surprise us, however, right, when she and every other person who's ever lived inherited a sinful nature. Right? I know exactly where she got that from because I have it too. Right? A sin nature is passed down and it affects every person who's ever lived. And Scripture is clear that every person is a sinner in need of a Savior. In Romans 3, Paul says that there is no one righteous, not even one, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, Paul is making it very clear that this sin nature affects everybody. There's no one who's immune to it and no one who's escaped its power. Well, that is except for one person, and we'll get to him in a moment. A pastor once said that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Again, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's part of our very nature. First and foremost, it's a condition, but that condition does affect how we live. And so it does affect our actions as well. Sin is both intentional and unintentional, right? And there are sins of 
commission and sins of omission. So sometimes when we sin, it's completely unintentional. It's like studying for a test as hard as you can and still failing at the end of the day. It's not that you didn't put in the effort. It's not that you didn't try. You just fell short of the standard. And so sin is also doing the wrong thing and not doing the right thing. Again, in Romans, Paul has this conversation. It's in Romans chapter 7. And and we get a glimpse into his inner monologue as he's trying to understand and, and wrestle with the reality of sin in his life. And in Romans 7, Paul says that he, he realizes that he, he knows what he ought to do, and yet he doesn't do it. And he knows the thing that he ought to avoid, and that's what he finds himself doing over and over and over again. And so in this dialogue in Romans 7, we see that sin is both not doing the right thing and doing the wrong thing. So it's sins of commission and sins of omission. And Scripture makes this clear, again, from beginning to end by the way in which it defines sin or the words in which it uses to talk about sin. And both in the Old and New Testament, there's a variety of words that are used. And and one can can simply be translated as missing the mark. You know, sin is, is trying your hardest, trying to be good, but still falling short. It's actually a term that's used in archery. You're aiming for the target. You're aiming for the bullseye. But for some reason, it just doesn't land home. Sin, at the same time, is also talked about as rebellion. In other words, intentionally doing what is wrong, knowing the way that you should go and going in the opposite direction. Right? Think of Jonah right, being called to go to Nineveh and preach the word, yet going as far away from Nineveh as he possibly could. Right? That is rebellion against God's stated purpose and plan. Scripture also talks about sin as transgression, which is about breaking the rules, that understanding that God has placed a boundary line, right, in our lives and trespassing over it. Transgression is like trespassing over a boundary. Scripture also talks about sin as iniquity, which is immoral or unfair behavior, right, treating others unfairly or immorally. And of course, to reiterate a point, sin is also described as part of our fallen human nature. The New Testament especially talks about sin as being the flesh, right? Part of who we are, baked into every person as a result of the fall. And so it's important to understand what sin is, but not just how Scripture describes it, but the impact that it has on our lives, right? Different sins may have different impacts on a on a worldly level, right? The way that I treat someone, right? I, I, may, I may treat someone out of anger or hate or spite, but that is not the same as murdering them, right? From, our, from a worldly perspective, those two sins are not the same. They have a different impact, different effect on the world that we live in. But from God's perspective, no matter how big or how small, all sin is equally deserving of punishment, Because the magnitude of sin, the magnitude of our guilt, is determined by the one who we offend. As you know, earlier this summer, the Queen of England celebrated her 70th year on the throne, which is just amazing if you think about the longevity of that. Now, I could say something, if I were visiting London, I could walk up to a random person on the street and say something to that person, and, and they may be mad at me, they may be offended, but I'm not really going to face many consequences for that. But if I were to walk up to the Queen of England and say that very same thing and insult her, you better know there will be bigger consequences for me than for the random person on the street. Because the person that is offended determines the size of the offense. The words may have been the same, but the offense is much greater. Now imagine someone infinitely greater than the Queen of England. Right? God is the creator and sustainer of the entire universe, not just the ruler of some islands in northern Europe. Jesus is not just a king. He is the king of kings. And all people, yes, even the Queen of England and the President of the United States and every other person who's ever lived will one day bow down and acknowledge that he is Lord. And scripture is also clear that all sin is an affront to God. Psalm 51.4, this is David 
in his famous confession of his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, says, Against you, speaking to the Lord, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. And so if you take those two things to be true, that the magnitude of the sin is dependent upon the one being sinned against, and that all sin is an affront to God and all sin offends him, then the logical conclusion is that all sin is, is in, we, are, we are infinitely guilty of sin ourselves. But here's the thing. The more we understand the magnitude of our sin, the more we'll understand the magnitude of God's grace. Because Scripture is clear that as, as terrible and heinous and awful as sin is, God's grace is even greater. That God's love has overcome our sin because of Jesus and his death on the cross. We owe an infinite debt and we have no means to pay it ourselves. Therefore, we need someone to save us. We need a rescuer. We need a redeemer. We need a savior to step in and fix this mess. And that is, of course, where Jesus comes into play. And Jesus himself knew this. If you've been reading our, our Bible reading plan through Matthew, you know in, in, Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, the very first message from Jesus' lips in his ministry, in Matthew chapter 4, it's, uh, it's Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Right? Jesus understood that our greatest need was, was to be forgiven, to repent from our sins because God's kingdom was coming close. We also have to understand that, that the, excuse me, the greater our understanding of our own sin should also lead to compassion towards others. Right? If we truly understand how, how guilty we are and how much we have sinned, we'll realize that from that perspective, we're all in the same boat, that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus in the parable, excuse me, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 talks about two men, right, that have, uh, the, the, Jesus says, why do we judge others? He says, first you need to take the plank out of your own eye, and then you can see well enough to remove the speck in your brother's eye. Right? In other words, we need to acknowledge, when we acknowledge our own sin, when we acknowledge our own shortcomings, it helps us to see better our brothers and sisters in Christ and the condition that they're in, and yes, have compassion on them and help them as we are able to. And so we need to have a greater understanding of sin in order to understand Jesus as our Savior. Because he is the one who steps in and rescues us from our sin. Which, of course, brings us then to today's passages. We're going to start looking at Titus chapter 3. And we're going to learn about, about what salvation truly means now that we've taken time to understand our sinfulness. First of all, Titus 3 teaches us that our salvation is based solely on God's love, kindness, and mercy. In other words, salvation is an act of the triune God, not based on our works and not based on our ability to do good works. So we see all three persons of, of the Trinity are at work, working together to achieve our salvation. And we see that salvation is done according to the will of the Father. It is God's plan the Father's plan from before the beginning of time to rescue us from our sin. We see that salvation is accomplished through the work of the Son. Jesus Christ died on the cross and was raised to life for our salvation. And salvation is also applied to the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is sent by the Father through the Son in order to soften our hearts so that we may understand God's word and put our trust in him. And so salvation is done according to the will of the Father, accomplished through the work of the Son, and applied through the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's why Titus 3, 4 first says that, that it is God our Savior, because all three persons of the Trinity are at work. And so if God is our Savior, that means it's not based on our own merit. Right? Too many of us in our, in our world think that everything works by cause and effect. So we must do the work. We must put in the work in order to experience God's love and forgiveness. 
But grace reminds us that that, that that is just simply not true. Good works do not earn our place in heaven, and neither do our bad works. Neither does our sin disqualify us because of Jesus. It's based solely on the character and faithfulness of God. And we see many passages of Scripture remind us of that. You got passages like John 3:16, right? That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Or how about Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10 where Paul says, "It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do." Again, It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Or how about one more for you? Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, our salvation is not about, it's not about me, it's not about you, it's not about the good things we can do to earn our place in God's family. It is based firmly on the character and the goodness and the faithfulness of God. We also see that salvation is not just a past reality. Salvation is about our past, our present, and also our future. We often think of salvation as something that just happened to us in the past, right? Either thinking about Christ dying for us on the cross, or maybe a prayer that we said when we were in Sunday school as a child. But this passage in all of Scripture makes it clear that salvation is a past, a present, and a future reality. And so it is something that has happened in the past. It was completed through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was a historical event that we can point to 2,000 odd years ago and say that is where our salvation was achieved. In the book of Hebrews, there's a phrase that's repeated at least three times that I found, and it's the phrase once for all. In Hebrews 7.27, in Hebrews 9.26, and Hebrews 10.10, the author there repeats that same idea that Christ died once for all to forgive us our sins. It's not something that needs to be repeated. It's not something that that we need to, uh, that we need to, um, it didn't just cover our past sins, it covers all of our sins. Because Christ died once for all. His sacrifice was enough to forgive us completely. And Jesus demonstrated that for us on the cross when he hung there, nailed and bloodied, about to give up his life. He said, it is finished. The work of salvation was completed. It was finished on the cross. And so when we think about our past salvation, we were saved from the penalty of sin for those in Christ, that is no, we are no longer under the penalty of sin. But salvation is also a present experience. And here in Titus 3, it reminds us that it's about the rebirth and ongoing renewal of the Holy Spirit. Jesus works through his Holy Spirit to save us and to sanctify us. Right? The rebirth is, is another way to talk about being born again or being saved or being forgiven. It's that new life that we are given when we put our trust in Christ. And renewal is that ongoing sanctification, that ongoing Christ-likeness that that the Holy Spirit works in us to become more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us by guiding us into all truth and reminding us of the things that Jesus taught. And his primary tool for doing that is right here, is the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit helps us to understand and apply God's word to our lives. And so the best way for us to experience the ongoing salvation that God has made possible for us through Christ is regular Bible reading and prayer. Read through the Gospels. It's not just about information transfer. It's not about just memorizing things. But it's about asking the Holy Spirit to, to help us to understand and apply what we read in the pages of Scripture so that we may become more like Jesus. And so when we think about our present salvation, we are being saved from the power of sin. We've been saved from the penalty of sin in the past. And in our lives, both today and into the future, we are being saved from the power of sin because we are being made more and more like Jesus. And finally, salvation is also a future reality. 
one day Christ will return and establish his kingdom. And that is where, why scripture here and other places talks about the hope of eternal life. Our hope in Jesus is for this life and for the next because Jesus conquered sin and death. That not even death itself can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Titus talks about us being heirs, right, to the internal inheritance that we have as children of God. Right, that, that as children of God, we will receive God's blessing, his inheritance, as we enter into his kingdom. Inheritance, right, from an earthly perspective, is something that is guaranteed and payable upon death of an individual. In this case, it's that, that payable on death is understood twofold. One, it was payable on the death of Christ on the cross. His death accomplished our salvation, and there's nothing that can reverse that or take it away. But we as individuals will come into full inheritance upon our own death when we enter into eternal life. That as we close our eyes in this world, we will open them in the presence of our Savior. And that's why Scripture in Revelation 21 describes the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and new earth as being a place that is completely void of sin. That sin will not even exist. And the, and the effects of sin will not even exist and the new heaven and the new earth. The Lord says, the old order of things has passed away. Behold, I am making everything new. And so when Christ returns, we will be saved from the very presence of sin itself. There's one more scripture passage that I asked Maria to read this morning, and we haven't gotten there yet, and we're going to turn our attention now to John chapter 129. Because we, we've seen so far that salvation is, is a completely and solely an act of God. We had a, we, we've seen that it is a past, a present, and future reality. And now we will see that in Christ, salvation is a substitutionary act. As John sees Jesus walking along, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, from Genesis on through, we, we see that the wages of sin is death. The penalty, the, the punishment for sin is death, both physical death and spiritual death, separation from God. But we also know, according to Romans 6.23, that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, the, real, the reality of sin cannot be ignored. That's why we started with that today. We need to acknowledge the reality of sin, and it needs to be dealt with one way or another. And the way I see it, there's two options. One, a person pays their own debt. In that case, there's no hope for salvation. Because as we've already discussed, we owe an infinite debt for sinning against an infinite God. And no one can pay that themselves. So the other option is that someone must pay the debt on our behalf. And this is what the sacrificial system in the Old Testament pointed to, right? The animals that were sacrificed were, were a, a foreshadow of what Christ would accomplish for us on the cross. You see, no, human, no animal or not even another human being can pay another person's debt because the debt is just too big to pay. You need an infinite being, an infinite person to pay an infinite debt. And you also need a perfect being. And as we all know, we are all sinners in need of a Savior, and so none of us can meet those requirements, but Jesus can. He is the eternal Son of God. He lived a per life of perfect obedience to the Father. He took our sin upon himself, and in return we receive his righteousness. That's why John the Baptist looked to Jesus and called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, that phrase, Lamb of God, is just full of meaning and significance through the, throughout the Old Testament. It pointed to the near sacrifice of Isaac, that as Abraham brought his son up onto the mountain and was about to sacrifice him to the Lord, the Lord put a stop to it. He spared Isaac, the son whom Abraham loved, and in return provided a lamb to be sacrificed instead. It reminds us of the Passover lamb, that in Exodus, as, as God's people were being rescued out of slavery and before they crossed the Red Sea, 
God instructed their people, the, his people to take a lamb and sacrifice it and smear the blood on the doorposts of their homes. And that act of faith and act of obedience would save them from the plague of the death of the firstborn. We get other passages like 1 Peter 1.9 that says, the, it is the, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, that we are saved. You see, the lamb acted as a substitute. It was sacrificed to atone for sin. And so Jesus himself is the lamb of God. He is our substitute. He died the death that we deserved. To take away our sin. Right, to take away the sin of the whole world, which seems like a strong statement. And at times we tend to think of the world as our enemy. Right, there's a lot of evil out there. There's a lot of difficulty difficult things that are happening. And it can be easy to think of the world as our enemy and just write it off. But we must remember that we do not fight against flesh and blood. We fight against the powers and principalities of this dark age. When God looks at the world, he has compassion for the lost. When Jesus looked at the city of Jerusalem, he wept because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Again, the most probably well-known verse in all of Scripture John three sixteen and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Before we close, there's one more thing that's important for us to, to remember. That although salvation is solely the work of God, that it is a substitutionary act that Jesus put himself in our place. Our salvation still must be received by faith. It is a, it is a gift is useless, right, if it's left in a box unopened. Allie and I recently went uh, to Seatown in Salina and enjoyed dinner there. And we had a gift card that we used to pay for the dinner. She'd been given it by someone some time ago. And for a long time, that plastic card just sat on our windowsill in our coat closet waiting to be used. Sitting on that windowsill, it was worth nothing to us. It wasn't until we took that card, went to the restaurant, handed it over to the, the server, that it actually, we were actually able to receive the benefits of that gift. It had been paid for already, but it didn't, didn't mean anything to us until we had taken it and used it for ourselves. See, Jesus has already paid the bill for us. Your sin and my sin has been paid for on the cross, but we still need to receive it and accept it for ourselves. In just a moment, I'm going to pray as we close out our time here and, and move into our final uh, song of worship this morning. And as I pray, I'm going to, I'm going to rem- this. It's as simple as saying, I'm sorry, thank you, and help me. And that's how we receive that gift that God has given us. We say we're sorry for our sins, right? Again, we have to acknowledge our need for God and acknowledge that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And so we say we are sorry for the things that we have done. The second thing is we say thank you. We say thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying on the cross and rising again and paying that price that I could not pay for myself. And so we acknowledge our sin, but we also acknowledge that Jesus is the Savior that we need. And then third, we say, help me. Help me now from this point forward to live by faith in the Son of God and the power of your Holy Spirit for you the rest of my days. And so I invite you to pray that with me. Maybe you've never prayed that sort of prayer before. I encourage you to do that today. Or maybe you have prayed that prayer, and, and this is an opportunity to recommit yourself to the Lord, recommit yourself to Jesus as Savior. And I encourage you to do that as well. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful that you are our Savior. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have worked together to accomplish our salvation. And so we come before you now and fully admit our need for you. Lord, we say that we are sorry. We have sinned and fallen short of your glory. We have done things and said things and thought things that were not pleasing to you. And we've left undone things we know we ought to have done. And so, Lord, we are sorry for our sin. 
We also want to say thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died on the cross for us, that you paid the price that we could never pay ourselves. You have fully accomplished and achieved our salvation. And we receive that gift of grace now by faith. We also say, help us, Lord. Help us to live for you from this point forward. Help us to live in light of your salvation, in light of your grace and mercy and love and kindness. And we ask that you fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we may live Christ-like lives from this point forward. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we close out our service of worship this morning, I invite you to stand with us and sing our final song in Christ alone, which reminds us that our salvation is in Christ and Him alone. If you'd like to speak or pray with me, I'll be right down in the front pew if anybody would like that this this morning. the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You may go in peace.